Well, good morning. Welcome to Battleground. If, you, if, you're on, if you're joining us online, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, open it with me to James chapter 3 as we are working through this third chapter. Got a little bit of a smaller t- section to work through this morning, uh, but there's a lot here. As you get ready, let me just remind you, we do have a men's camping trip coming up this weekend, and so we'd, we'd love for you if, you, if if you're a man, to be a part of that. No. And so John back there in the production booth, he's the guy you want to see to get all the information. You can also just go online. It's everything we need for our, the life of the church is found on our website. So stand with us. Faith and our ambitions. As we read... Let's keep to mind and call to mind the main idea of the passage today. Faith calls all believers to reject self-centered ambition and pursue godly wisdom through a God-centered humility. So let us read God's word. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Impartial and sincere. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Your word that has shaped and formed me this week. And so, Lord, show us your goodness today. Give us your wisdom. Cultivate what is needed in this body and in our lives, which we need to do that great work that you have placed us for such a brief period of time to do. Heal us if we need to be healed and challenge us where we need to be challenged. Comfort us where we need to be comforted with the power of your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do your pastor the privilege of going to the bathroom before church. Uh, I will say this quite candidly. I was distracted last week, and I am not easily distracted. I am a person that can deal with children and issues of all kind, and I'm not easily distracted. But last week, there was a lot of moving around. So please realize that if I'm distracted, everybody around you is too. And uh, just a little pastoral word. And... uh, I was gone for my anniversary Friday and Saturday. We came back 28 years with my wife. Anniversaries are important. I can remember seeing Christina sing at Parkwood for the first time, um, being smitten by her beauty and surprised that she would dare go out with a redneck such as myself. Uh, Some 30 years counting our you want to call it dating life, engaged life, not engaged life, engaged life. There's a story there. We found ourselves over the last 30 years beginning quite early in our relationship 
in the emergency room going through our troubles and graduations and birthday parties and children being born. and Life is a mixture, isn't it? Of both the wonderful and the hard. And anniversaries are important because, as my brother often reminds me, sometimes our wood gets wet. And no fire burns unless you stoke it, unless you work on it. Not in your marriage and not in the life of the church. Uh, Anniversaries are important because life can have a dulling effect on every relationship that we are under. This is... The context for James. James is written to a church. A church that has been through much life. Many trials. Many temptations. Because the world seems to be attractive when you're going through hard times. They offer you a placebo. A coping mechanism. And so I want you to see this. This will help us for the next couple of weeks. You got your notes. You can see that. What, what James is dealing with is an unhealthiness that is beginning to happen in the community of faith. You could say this would be the same requirements or recommendations or challenges that could be in your life and in your marriage and in God's church. Last week we learned the first one. Watch your mouth if you want a healthy family. If you want a healthy marriage. If you want a healthy church. Watch this thing. Remember we said this last week. It's dangerous. It's almost uncontrollable. And so this week he adds the second thing which we need in order to control our mouth and in order to control our passions. Wisdom. Not just any kind of wisdom, godly wisdom. Next week we're going to see this problem we have with the passions, the desires in our life. If we're going to have a healthy community, we've got to watch our passions. And in chapter 4 and verse 11 and 12, we'll look at the fact that we must not judge other people. That's not that we all make judgments. He's saying we must not be judgmental. We must not snap to the, the bad in people, making decisions about them, especially those closest to us, without the facts. Give people the benefit of the doubt. What happens when we don't work on these things? Is what was happening in the church there. Quarrels, fights, division, unhealthiness in our families and in our marriages and in God's church. And so, in chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, we're going to look at this. You need to repent a lot. Repent as needed. Work on these things. You're going to blow it, of course. Repent as needed. This is James's constant theme. We need wisdom. James 1, 5 and 8. If anybody lacks wisdom, ask for it. But don't ask for it halfway. If you want it, if you need it, if you know that there's no way I can bring glory to God with my mouth and with my desires and with my life, save He give me something I do not have. He says, ask for it. Here's the reality that he's dealing with too in the church. Verse 13, he asks this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Here's what he's getting at. He's already told us this. It's possible for you to think something is true about yourself and be deceived. So there's people in the church who thought themselves to be godly and wise. And he's saying, who is it? (laughs) Almost a verbal trap, you know. It's like saying, who's humble? (laughs) You know, he's going, not you. You know, when you raise your hand, no, you're not it. He says, by his goodness and conduct, show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Godly wisdom is... 
like radical faith, is foundational to our life, and yet it has a practical quality to it. More foundational than anything we say, think, or even feel. This is his reoccurring theme, isn't it? If you declare you are wise, he said it is far more important that you demonstrate you are wise. Because if you do not demonstrate your wisdom, you are in fact not wise at all. And the only way you can objectively tell whether in fact you are filled with godly wisdom and not earthly wisdom is if some way objectively you can't look at the fruit hanging on your tree. The demonstration is critical. Because notice this verse, worldly wisdom produces rebellious wickedness. We know worldly wisdom, not simply by what it looks like. It's what it's producing in our life is how we know it exists. Look at verse 15. Matter of fact, let's read verses 14 to 16, just so we understand this again. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and self, self, selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I want you to see both with worldly wisdom and with godly wisdom, there is a, an origination. There is a starting point. It comes from somewhere. And what he gets at here is it starts in hell. He wants you to understand how dangerous it is. We've already talked about this type of wisdom, but what he's doing here is bringing it back up. And he, as it were, is putting a sharper point on it. So let me tell you just this definition. If you ask me, where did I get this definition? I didn't get it out of a book. I got it from the exposition of the text. Worldly wisdom is powerfully demonic and always seeks to advance the self at the cost of everyone and everything around it. That's what worldly wisdom is. Worldly wisdom makes the best choice to advance itself, and it does not care what it costs anybody or anything else. Listen, we don't have to learn how to do this. It is in our very nature when we are born. This is the problem of sin in our own life, in the lives of those that we love the most. And let me just point out probably one of the clearest examples in our world today. It is the prosperity gospel heresy. I don't say heresy lightly as your pastor. I very seldom ever use that word. But the prosperity gospel is heresy precisely because how it perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is worldly. It is natural. It is demonic. And it tells people and attracts people and takes their last two pennies to cultivate what they are, their own selfish ambition and tells them that's the point of the gospel. It is not only heretical, it is damning. That's worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is demonstrated in the wise of what we do. Why did you vote for the last candidate you voted for? You see, that's how you know whether you're godly wise or worldly wise. Did you vote for the candidate because of what he was going to do for you? That's worldly wisdom. Why do I go to the church I go to? Because of what the church can do for me 
in my family, and if it doesn't give me and my family what we think we deserve or want or need, we'll just go to the next one down the street, and we'll keep going till we find what we need. We need to understand that's not a spiritual searching. That is demonic. It is worldly. It is evil, and don't call it godly if it's not. That's what he's telling them. Some of you are saying that you have godly wisdom, but your demonstration it says, coming from somewhere else, it is earthly. You see that? It is earthly. He's, he's saying that there's two kinds of wisdom coming from two different places. One comes from the natural world and one comes from the supernatural world. And this does not come from the supernatural world. That is, from God. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, people with worldly wisdom in Philippians 3.19 have their minds set on earthly things. In other words, worldly wisdom comes from a heart and a mind that is still enslaved by sin. It still desires sin. And that's why it desires self, uncontrollably so. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. And he is contracting that which is spiritual, that which is alive in Christ with that which is not. Jude, a little short book probably grabs the context of what's going on constantly in the life and body of the church. In Jude, verse 17, he says this, But we must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Verse 19, this is good. It is these who cause divisions, listen to how he describes them, Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That another good definition in the Bible for what is worldly. There's no spiritual power. It is not motivated by the Spirit. It is not checked by the Spirit. This Holy Spirit is not saying, hold on a second. Why are you doing that? That's a good thing when the Holy Spirit does that, by the way. That's part of your assurance. What are you doing? Stop that. Saying ultimately the demonic is its origin. Isn't that what the devil has been doing from the self? What about you, Eve? What about you, Adam? God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. You just need to look after yourself. If you take this, you'll be wise just like God. What is that doing? Saying take care of yourself. Nobody else is going to do it. Pursue your own ambitions. Follow your dreams, right? The things of the Disney Channel, right? Just follow your dreams. Magnify yourself. Satan, listen, here's the point. Satan uses that one little seed to corrupt every relationship in your life. It begins with God. Worldly wisdom is motivated. It originates in the demonic. It is motivated Moved is fundamental motivating factor is selfish ambition. Now back back up to verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be don't boast and be false to the truth. He says, quit saying and, and voicing, look how wise I am. When your life is being motivated with that which is the antithesis. Of selfless humility. So you got these two motivations down in the dirt of our life. The, 
that which motivates, that produces some kind of fruit, is either selfless humility or a selfish ambition. It's either selflessness or it's making much of the self. Paul condemns this kind of jealousy. And remember, jealousy is, is not always taught in Scripture is wrong. Jesus and God, and one of his character qualities is that he's jealous in the, in the fact that he deserves and demands faithfulness from his people. But there is a sinful jealousy. Listen to Romans 13 and verse 14. He says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here's the scary part. This unselfish devotion to Christ alone, this zeal for Christ and His glory, lies dangerously close to the deceived church member motivated by self-interest. They're closer than you think they are. Let me give you an illustration. This is not a made-up illustration. This is a real one going on today. It's church politics. There's, there's churches around us, and I know of one. They have about 20 to 25 members left in a dying church. And here's what happens. Every time somebody comes in and tries to help and say, hey, let's focus on, you know, reaching your community. Let's focus on this. You have 10 to 12 people that says, let's do it. You have 10 to 12 other people says, no, not going to do it. That's not the way we're going to do it. Guess what they do? Nothing. If you ask those two groups of people, do you love your church? They would say, yes, I love the church. They would sing, blessed Redeemer, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory to mine. And they are scorning and angry and bitter, jealous, having their own selfish ambitions, while the church of Jesus Christ is scorned and the community was placed to make much of Christ. You see the problem? That lies dangerously close together. Because being deceived, they say, I love God, I love my church. But they're at each other, quarreling and fighting. He said, that is simply a fruit. The root is selfish ambition. You see, you can see it by what it produces. Worldly wisdom produces rebellion and wickedness. The text here in verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So you see these, the fruit. The fruit, if we see our picture, hanging from the tree. Then there is authentic fruit. There's counterfeit fruit. They're th- they think they're wise. He said, look, let me, let's, let's, take, let's pick one of your fruit and let's taste it. What does it taste like? Paul says this, and everybody knows the church in Corinth had some problems, just to say the least. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, Paul says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. That's the New Living Translation. I think he just nails it. God is not the God of disorder. One translation said, He is not the author of confusion. This term disorder means a a restless, unsettled state. It has at its heart a rebellion against God-given authority. If you read the end times, this is the character 
of the culture, but right before Christ returns. Uh, one place, one, one biblical term calls it tumults. Just another way of saying disorder. You will hear wars and rumors of wars and there will be disorder in the land. It's this term that there is this unsettled state. This is the seedbed of quarrels and arguments and strife in our homes and in God's church. He said the reason that that is happening, that that fruit that you see is going on, is, is the fact that there is selfish ambition in the root, and that is what's causing it. Listen, allowing your children to make your family only about them is not only self-destructive for them, it is destructive for your family. They are not the center of the universe, and they will find that out sooner or later. What that breeds is chaos. This, this disorder comes from allowing peoples to practice their selfish ambitions unchecked. Chaos is the result. Said disorder is the fruit. But not only that, every vile practice. Just another way of vile is just another way of saying wickedness or evil. And here's what he's getting at by this word. He's saying this picture is some kind of action for which no good can come. No good. It's bad. It's that bad. That's why that's why he brings selfish ambition. Self, listen, selfish ambition doesn't have the ability to produce good fruit. In other words, if it's down in there, there's no way that it's going to produce good fruit in your life or in the life of anybody else. It has no ability to produce anything godly, anything pure, and anything that generally wants to do stuff unselfishly for the good of somebody else. Even when they do something good, it's for their own benefit. Worldly wisdom destroys unity. It develops what they call in the church factions. You know what a faction is? Well, here's a definition. I think it's helpful. Combine disorderly opposition to established authority. So you can see it in, in that little church illustration. You've got two factions in the church. Both of them are, in effect, rebelling against God-given authority and have their own desires about what makes church. And so everybody is doing what they said in the Old Testament, what is right in their own mind. They're doing their own thing, and they're mad because people don't understand that what they want to do is always the right thing to do. Paul, again, in speaking to the church in Corinth, said, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see, the only way that happens if there is no selfish ambition. If there, if there is selfish ambition, there cannot be any unity of mind, and you're not going to make the same judgments. Paul said the remedy. He gives the remedy in Philippians 2.4. He says, let each of you look out, not only to his own interest. In other words, you're supposed to look after your interest but also to the interest of others. James is leaning more into this. 
says that we are not looking out for the interest of others because in the root of our life there is selfish desires and ambitions and it is polluting the fruit. Our freshwater stream, as we talked about last week, has become polluted. And so what James is calling us to do, calling the church to do, is to reject worldly wisdom and pursue godly wisdom. Why? How do I know that I am a godly wise man or a godly wise woman? He said, cause in your life it produces peace and righteousness. Verse 17 and 18. Let's just read verse 17 to start with. It says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So we're saying the same thing when we get to godly wisdom. Where does godly wisdom come from? Where does it originate? How do I get it? How, how do I receive it? How does one just, do I just need to go to the right Bible school or take, go into seminary class? How, how do I... How do I get it? He says, it comes from heaven. That's what the text says, isn't it? But wisdom from above. It's from above. It is from God. There is no other way to get it unless he gives it to you. And he only gives it to his children, but he loves to give it in abundance to his children. So go with me. I want you to see this to the book of Proverbs. I don't normally read something this long as a, as a parallel passage, but this was just so good. And I just have to read it. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2. Question is, how do we get this? Where does it come from? Proverbs chapter 2 verse 1. said, my son, if you receive my words and know... Notice the value, the treasure. Notice these words. These words are important. If you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you, can, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, verse 4, if you seek it like silver and, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is the shield of those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice and watching over his saints. Verse 9, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you and deliver you, notice, from the way of evil. And from men of perverted speech. Don't miss that from last week. You want to be protected from not only your mouth, but other people's mouth? Come to God for wisdom. Wisdom originates in God. And he is the only one that can give you this wisdom. This wisdom has a motivating factor too. And it is an active selfless humility. I'm not speaking of something that is philosophical. I'm speaking of something that is simple, visible, and very practical. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Listen 
to how Paul describes this. I want you to see, too, what we looked at a few weeks ago, that, that, that Paul and James are speaking the exact same message. Philippians 2, 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So, false wisdom or ungodly wisdom or worldly wisdom flows into this disorder and sinful wickedness. And you can notice it. It is distinct. It has a particular fruit, even a particular smell. He says, godly wisdom is the same way. You will know it by the visible fruit in people's life. That's what he means in verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13 again. He said, by his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see it? It's visible. It it smells like something in the lives of other people. Notice what he says in verse 17. It should pursue holiness or purity. This means moral blamelessness. That's why every spiritual leader in the church should be above reproach. That means he should rise above any credible accusation that would come against him. He lives his life that way. He factors the people, the community, the sheep into how he lives his life. And he loves doing that. Because that's what our Jesus did when he came and died for us. That's what we pursue. This is how you find someone who is already godly wise... Does he pursue purity? And does he make peace? This was a big one. This is the heart. He's not talking about somebody who hopes for peace. I hope one day we can have peace between this people and that people. I hope one day my... No, he makes peace. You see that? It's active. He comes in to two warring factions... Two quarreling groups of people, and he determines to make peace. That's what he's pursuing. This is active. This is the father who comes home to a house in chaos and kids pitching a fit. And what he doesn't do is go into his room and shut the door or get in his recliner and turn the TV on. No, what he's about to do, brothers and sisters, is make peace. One way or the other. That's simply what godly people do. Listen, biblical church discipline is given to us so that we might have peace. And churches that don't practice it always end up in chaos. And the news is proof of that. Not only that, there is, this is important to display meekness. Godly wise people are gentle. That's, that's his point. And there again, we've talked about this before. That doesn't mean weak. That means kind. That means you use all your abilities and your powers and your gifts and your authority and, and whatever God has given you for the good of other people. You are fair. You are yielding. You're connected to the next one. You're open to reason, which means two things. You are considerate of other people and you are submissive to God-given authority. 
You pursue peace, but there is a standard for peace. Look at the next two. Simple. So simple. This should be flowing out of all of our life. We should overflow in mercy. James has already defined that for, for us as love for our neighbors. Loving other people as Christ loved you. Loving other people as we love ourselves. It is simple. It is practical. It is visible. It is acts of kindness that flow out of our lives and practical good deeds next. In other words, there should be in our life to the godly wise person an overflow of a buffet of hospitality that flows out for the good of other people. No matter whether they recognize it or even thank us for it. We do it because we cannot not do it. Because we feel God's glory when we do it. People who seek peace must be impartial. They must be without prejudice. If you're going to make peace between two groups of people, somebody has to be objective. The wise person is objective. They want to bring glory to God through peace in their home, through peace in His church. Godly wise person, you know what you're getting when you meet them. They're ref that's refreshing. You know, they might be a little weird. You know, I got news for you. All of y'all are a little weird. Me too, every once in a while. We're all just a little bit weird to each other. But here's my hope. When you meet me on Thursday at Walmart, you still meet the same Stephen that's talking to you today. Because if that's true, then we can trust each other. If there's a different person on Monday than there is on Sunday, how can I trust you? Haven't we all been through that? Sit with somebody we thought was our friend and say, you know, today I just want to quit. I just want to not be this. I just want to not do this. I just want to... And they go out there and call up someone's phone and says, Whoa, sister, we need to pray for so-and-so. I, I think she might be heading towards divorce. What have you just done? You've, you've demonstrated by your fruit that you're not wise because you're not sincere. More importantly, say verse 18 the last because it's the most important. Look at verse 18. Godly wisdom produces peace that leads to righteousness. It says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is he saying here? Oh, this is so important. He's saying that wise people create a particular culture. They create a particular culture in their homes. They create a particular culture in the church. And the culture they create is a peaceful culture. Why is that important? Got anybody that has ever taught in a school? I know Christina has. You know this is true. You find a child whose grades are in the toilet, whose behavior is out of control, and many times you find out what's going in the home and there will be chaos in the home. 
You find me a child that's doing good with his grades. And all of a sudden his grades tank. And his behavior goes out the window. There's something going on in his home life. Because peace is necessary for growth. It is just absolutely true. In God's economy, if you want to grow, you must have peace. If you allowed chaos to rule in the church of Jesus Christ or in your home, nobody will grow. And one day they will not want to come home when they grow up because home wasn't a place of peace when they were a child. Make it a place of peace. Brothers, this is your primary responsibility. We are God's people, and the home should be a place of safety. The church should be a place of safety. It should be a place of peace. It should be a place to be okay, not to be okay. Where people have your back, and you know who you're looking at. Create a peaceful home, and your children will always enjoy coming home. There is a harvest of righteousness to be had. There is a harvest of righteousness that is promised That if we sow these things, if we pursue these things, Christ's likeness in our life and in other people's life will be the fruit of it. Nobody grows in an atmosphere of anger and bitterness and jealousy and selfishness. So what? I hope this comes out clear telling somebody earlier there are often times that a preacher does not get much sleep on Saturdays and this was one of those nights where God will wake me up for your benefit and understand this through many of our life you have sat where you sat today and you have heard so many sermons that you don't even remember how many sermons you have had and God's messenger has placed God's word and God has placed in his messenger's word and he has sent it to you. And I think some of us need to have a, a spiritual anniversary celebration. We needed that. We needed simply 24 hours to get away because simply the heart of life sometimes dulls our affections towards each other's and it dulls your affections towards your God. And you need to stop and remember these things. Has life dulled your affections toward God? Has grace become an entitlement? Has intimacy become an expectation? Or even neglected? Listen to what the psalmist says. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell In the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning to ask that question. Stephen, when is the last time you gazed into the beauty of God? Just because he's beautiful. This is not some kind of religious checklist that we're doing. You've got to answer this question. When's the last time you saw God as beautiful? As your all-consuming passion. That which is all you need in this life. 
When is the last time you were confounded by his wisdom, awestruck by his kindness, mesmerized by his mercy, motivated by the multitudes of his grace? When is the last time you realized that all that suffering in your life may produce something in another generation that you cannot see with your eyes because that's how wise our God is? He gives us and he takes away Because He is doing something in the lives of people around us that you cannot see or imagine, and we must trust Him. Remember, everything God gives you is holy. Everything God gives you, even the heart, is holy. He does not have the ability to give you something that is unholy. We know this from our life. From the cancer to the graduation ceremony, God is working an eternal weight of glory. It's not always about you. God's wisdom is orchestrating things in other people's life. In subsequent generations, here's what we had to learn at the ER that night and the months ahead. When God took away our little baby through a miscarriage, God is God and I am not. All people belong to Him. This is not home. Why is that important? Because one day God's going to call each one of us home and your family will stand around on that funeral and ask God, why did He do it? And you need to understand it now before it happens. God is God and you are not God. All people and all things belong to Him. And we have them but for a short while. This is not home. And one day, God is going to call us home. And He's not going to tell you when He's going to do it. Learn these lessons. Why? God God gives you two things while you're here for this brief period of time. The ability to find peace. And the seeds to sow peace. Can may even say it better. He gives us this short little period of time so that peace can find us. And when it does, I got this picture in my mind. I'm sorry if you can't envision it. That old the guy who sows seed and he's got that bag slung over his and he's got this bag of seed in his hand that comes with your Christ stamped on your life. He gives you a bag of seed. And he says, I'm not going to tell you how long you're here. You don't know. Could be longer than you think. Could be shorter than you can imagine. But he's placed the people in your life sovereignly so. And he's given you a bag of seed. Every time when you come to church on Sunday, it is my responsibility to put more seed in that bag. It is your responsibility to sow it. Here's what I'm asking this morning. Is your, is your seed become rotten and dormant and stagnant in your bag because you keep listening to Bible studies and, and reading and all this stuff and your bag is too big? You come here because your bag is empty because you've already scattered it all. And it's not your responsibility to make it grow. Why do you need a spiritual anniversary? Because God gives us this brief time to sow the seed and we must sow it. Here's the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and I'm done. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. 
Verse 10, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's a promise. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Your sowing in other people's life produces worship in their life to their God. And that is the purpose of life. Sow the seeds. God promises the harvest. What seeds are you sowing? And what harvest are you expecting? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. That, Lord, that we can step out in faith. To sow the seeds of the gospel into the lives of those that we love. Even, Lord, sometimes that we've sowed it for years. Prayed for years. Wept for the souls of those that we love. Longing for them to love you and desire you. Lord, may you encourage your people. Just sow the seed. God, encourage your people today. You have given us so much. And so, Lord, we come to give you all that we have. And that is our life. Take it and use it, Lord. Use Battleground Community Church to flip King's Mountain on his head for the glory of God. You can take 11 guys, 12 guys, and turn the world upside down. You can use us. So, Lord, we come to you saying we believe, but help our unbelief. Produce in us a harvest of righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.